Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Kinjal Shah, investor at Blockchain Capital. Kinjal and I do a deep dive on the NFT tech stack, focusing on the marketplaces and tools driving NFT activity. We chat about some of the themes in Kinjal's When Consumer Meets Crypto Research Report and explore how NFTs act as new distribution and monetization channels for creators in the new ownership economy. All this and more coming up. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Kindle, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, likewise. I've been really looking forward to our conversation, and I wanted to kick it off on a fun note. Kinjal, you're an active member of Crypto Twitter. Uh, what's something about your crypto journey your followers won't know from scrolling through your tweets? <laughs> That's a great question. Folks probably won't know. So I started off my crypto journey at Fidelity alongside some of the other folks in the Fidelity team that have been working on their strategy there. And my first real love within the crypto space was Bitcoin. And I really came to understanding Bitcoin through the lens of uh, understanding gold. So my family, we're of Indian descent. We use and hold and wear a lot of gold just from a more cultural perspective. And it just really clicked to me when I thought about the potential of a store value asset that you know has different properties in gold, but can be likened to it um, when it comes to the portability and the scarcity. And yeah, it just made a lot of sense. And so that's kind of where I started my journey and, and how I came to be here. After finding out about Bitcoin, uh, since becoming an investor at Blockchain Capital, how did you then come across NFTs? Are you more of a reformed skeptic or a devout enthusiast, someone who's always been following the NFT space? Yeah, I love that question. So when I joined Blockchain Capital almost three years ago, it was really right after CryptoKitties had taken off and then the sort of subsequent issues with scaling CryptoKitties. And I thought the idea was really interesting. And I started looking into gaming use cases with NFTs. So as I was part of the blockchain capital team, I actually did quite a bit of work on understanding some of the use cases of NFTs and just how you know they could really enrich a gaming experience. And so that's kind of been where I personally have just spent a lot of time through my own curiosities. I just really love the idea of bringing in creativity and more of this idea of different creators on the web and allowing them to monetize their work. So that's just been a focus of mine for my entire investor journey. And it's just kind of shifted and ebbed and flowed with the market in terms of where things are going. And I've just kind of been keeping an eye on it this entire time. For investors, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, you guys are often forced to think big picture in order to sort of mentally capture the industry that you're investing in, right? Do you find this to be the case? Yeah, definitely. You know, as an investor, we're, we're really thinking about what are going to be the prevailing ideas and trends that define the next 5, 10, 15 years of the space. And from that regard, I would say it's very much about forming these 
strong opinions, but weakly held to a certain extent, being adaptable and understanding that the markets kind of move and and responding accordingly. So when it comes to the NFT space on the longer term horizon, I've always felt really strongly that there's going to be a really interesting model that comes out of this. And it was really more about understanding where value capture will happen in the short term and how we can play a role in that moving forward. For sure. I'm going to put a pin in that phrase there, value capture uh, within the NFT space. You know, there's so much going on right now. It seems like everyone in mainstream media is so hyper-focused on the next eye-popping NFT sale, right? The Beeple uh, auction was massively successful. Uh, but the question is, you know, how many of these high-profile sales will there be going forward? And beneath this price action What else is happening right under the hood? All of this building that's been going on, as you write about in one of your pieces, saying that all this hype is really four years in the making. So I would love for us to start off our conversation here on NFTs by having you break down the universe of NFTs in a digestible way by explaining how you visualize NFT stack. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, something that's evolving to this day. So here's, I guess, the high level framework that I've been using. So at the very base, we have the layer one protocols where we are issuing NFTs. So to date, you know, that that's really been um, primarily with the ERC 721 standard on Ethereum. But we also have, of course, Flow, which is what Dapper Labs is using, and a number of other blockchains that are experimenting with issuing NFTs. So to me, that's kind of the base. And then from there, we have the the infrastructure layer. So this is things like exchanges and marketplaces that allow users to buy and sell NFTs, potentially platforms that allow you to discover NFTs, and then tools that kind of help with price discovery data storage, growth of these markets, et cetera. So really kind of this middle layer is probably comprised of many different subcategories, but I, I like to think of it as the infrastructure. And then at the very top is where I see two sort of buckets. So first is the NFTs themselves. So this is where we have CryptoPunks or people auctioning off his piece of work. Those are the NFTs. And then we're going to start seeing, and we already have been seeing NFT financial products. So, you know, this might be an index of NFTs or potentially a platform where you can collateralize your NFT for a loan or whatever that may be. I think we're going to start to see a lot more applications emerge kind of sitting on top of all of this. Within this middle layer that you talked about, which includes the the tools, the uh, marketplaces, right, the exchanges and platforms, what do you think is the most important right now, if you take a look at it from an investor's lens, which of this is the most important foundation kind of above the protocol layer that you feel like needs to further develop in order for this sort of NFT industry to become more sustainable? After we're past this hype cycle, what's going to help it really sustain for the long run? It's an interesting question because it's something that we're, we're still sort of thinking through I'm sort of seeing two strategies with the exchanges and marketplaces take place. So the first strategy is really horizontal expansion across the entire value chain of services that a marketplace could offer. 
And then the second is going really deep on vertical and building out the entire stack of support for that particular vertical. So if I were to start with the first piece, you know, any of the, the marketplaces that we're seeing today, whether that's OpenSea, um, Rarible, um, you know, super rare and so on and so forth, you know, I think a lot of them are considering how do we make sure that we have the best process for creators to issue an NFT, for users to discover NFTs, for this auction experience of bidding on an NFT to feel seamless, uh, feel social, you know, have this entire um, discovery, you know, everything from discovery to issuance figured out. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done on that front that, um, you know, a lot of these exchanges have been doing for the past couple of years, but I think this is their sort of scaling moment where they're being sort of forced to um, bring a lot of features to market quickly and kind of scale with with the users. So that's one angle that I think is really critical right now. And I'm excited to sort of see how these exchanges embrace that full value chain. The second piece is just going really deep on a vertical. So we have seen that with, say, you know, Super Rare, for instance, who is really focused on art or we're starting to see it with other platforms that are really focused on music or collectibles, the way that Dapper is focused right now with NBA Top Shot. And I think really honing in on a particular use case allows them to build the best experience for their users. So really reaching in the art case, reaching collectors, reaching artists, reaching people and users who might, might want to collect that art, even if it's more like a hobby. And building that vertical out is going to be an interesting strategy where they can kind of own that category and then think about what's next for them. So that's kind of how I've been bifurcating the market. I think differentiation is going to be really, really important to think through over the next six to 12 months of how are all these different marketplaces differentiating their experience and their product. And right now is kind of the time period where I think that's all going to be defined. Which of these verticals that you mentioned, art, music, uh, gaming, which of these verticals do you think best offers users of the NFTs to participate in the full economic cycle? You know, I think if we take the NBA Top Shot example, I really like what they've built because they are pairing their NFTs with an experience down the line. And I think that really allows the users to enjoy and appreciate what they've purchased. So, you know, there's going to be a game, I believe, coming out that's going to be paired with this NBA Top Shot collectible moments um, that users can kind of engage in. They've created this really strong user base of, of folks who are just so excited for the next drop. And at the same time, I think while they have really nailed that user experience aspect, or at least I think they're well on their way to, to nailing that, you know, you don't have necessarily the creator on the other side because the creator is dapper in the NBA. I would say that that to me stands out as one of the exemplary user experiences in the market today. I think another example of the full creator lifecycle that's been really interesting is Mirror. So Mirror essentially is a self-publishing platform. I believe that they are built using aspects of the Zora protocol as well as you know being built on Ethereum and they allow anyone to publish their work. But also you can sort of crowdfund a token to represent your, your work. So there was an essay recently that was crowdfunded where people purchased a token for this writer to, to write this essay. And then after the fact, they kind of owned a portion of that essay and, and potentially have the ability to sell that in the future, depending on how that piece of work evolves. So I feel like that experience for 
the author of that piece was amazing. You know, I think they raised something like thirteen or $14,000 for him to go write this piece. And then on the other side, I think the, the readers were really able to appreciate the work that he had published and now kind of are holding on to this piece of an essay that potentially may become really valuable in the future. It's almost like if you were going to own one of the defining essays of um, Silicon Valley history that was written by, you know, Paul Graham or something like that. And I've been participating in some of these some of these sales, and I've just found the experience to be wonderful. There's just been a really good back and forth between the users and the creators on the Mirror platform that I'm really enjoying right now. Do you find that it's fairly easy to connect with other writers as well who's going through this experiment, people that you're crowdfunding perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So they do some really fun projects where, for example, to get onboarded onto the Mirror platform, they have what they call a race. And so every week there is a competition to essentially get onto the top 10 leaderboard and then you get onboarded onto the platform. And it's super fun. You know, I I joined and then I started posting on Twitter about, you know, if I join the Mirror platform, these are some of the topics that I'm going to be writing about and other people sort of show their support by voting. And now that I'm onto the platform every week, I look forward to voting and participating in who the next 10 writers are going to be that are onboarded. So it's really become such a fun, playful experience that I personally am really enjoying and working on publishing something there soon. So it's gamifying the writing experience, kind of lighting the fire under the writer, right? <laughs> as, a, as a form of accountability as well, knowing that other people know that you're on the platform, right? This is a very different experience than the experience that we have with something like Medium, where there really is no accountability. Yep, exactly. 100%. So I love that we've talked about some of these platforms that have enabled users to capture more value within this kind of new Web3 ecosystem from art and gaming and music to even something like writing. And as an investor, for you, I'm wondering, you know, how you value these NFT type businesses during a time where there are very few comparables to speak of, right? There are the OG platforms like Superware, but even then they've only been around for a handful of years. What does that framework even look like when you're discussing this, you know, with other investing partners around the table? It is definitely, to a certain extent, abstract these days. I'll give you two frameworks that I've been using historically to to think about this opportunity. So the first is just zooming out what is the market that we're building here. And I think there's a couple of different angles that you can look at it from. So for example, the first is what I call these unique resale marketplaces. So if you look at the traditional world recently, you know, we've seen an influx of sneaker marketplaces where folks who would collect sneakers or really like to buy vintage sneakers or really scarcely designed sneakers will go on goat marketplace and purchase them. And it's really all about this culture around being a sneakerhead. And that marketplace has recently had an almost $2 billion valuation and over $30 billion in sales, or at least closing in on that in the next couple of years. So you, if you just think about that opportunity and you know you can then extrapolate that to art or you can extrapolate that to collectibles or you know something that people are feel really passionate about. So I think that's the first piece is just thinking through analogous 
marketplaces that we have today. You know, another example there is secondary transactions. There are a lot of conversations around gaming secondary transactions, you know, how that's an estimated $50 billion market. But many of those transactions today are kind of occurring, um, you know, almost like OTC or, you know, they're happening on different forums and um, Mm -hmm. eBay and and places like that. There really is no formalized uh, marketplaces that, that exist today, or if there are, there are very few. So, you know, I think those are a couple of ways that we think about what is the potential market opportunity here and acknowledge the fact that, you know, it could potentially be much larger because we're really tapping into things that we just haven't um, ever really seen before. And then the second piece is just thinking through the business models and what are some of the ways that, you know, these platforms are making money. So, of course, with exchanges, you know, folks like OpenSea, they're they're really generating revenue on the transaction fees. And so that's a really familiar model where maybe there's a fee for the primary sale, but then of course there's also secondary market transaction fees. And what that translates to is really they do well when volumes are are up. So that's a really familiar business model. The other other piece that is really interesting is just thinking through the programmability of recurring revenue that can occur via NFT sales. So, you know, w- there's a lot of conversations around a primary sale will benefit the creator, but secondary sales don't don't typically. But using NFTs, you know, maybe there's a, a world where they will receive 10% of the royalties for the rest of the life of that NFT. Um, and maybe the platform receives a, a percentage of that as well. So I think thinking through some of the different business models and understanding what are the levers. So when when do they do really well? Do they do really well when an NFT is particularly popular? How often is an NFT going to change hands and what are the implications for a creator's um, revenue? Um, you know, how robust is the secondary market? I think right now it's it's relatively low because we are really in this early issuance um, and primary sale phase where people are just buying their first NFTs, let alone selling them again. So we're still early in that. But really just thinking through the different business models, what are some of the different levers and how that could grow over time is how I've been framing the opportunity as an investor. Yeah. I love the question, how robust is the secondary market? Because that makes me think a lot about price discovery. It's a huge question when it comes to NFTs because the secondary market isn't that liquid right now compared to crypto exchange venues for non-NFT tokens. And one platform that you've mentioned a couple times in your various tweets is Upshot, which is a platform that enables real-time NFT appraisals. Could you tell us a bit about Upshot, who are looking to build what they call a scalable crowdsourced appraisal infrastructure for NFTs? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited about what Upshot is building. They are, you know, effectively a peer uh, prediction protocol. So at a high level, what they allow you to do is crowdsource the truth or crowdsource the answer to any particular set of questions based on their sort of experts in, in their marketplace. You can think about the applications here being really robust. So everything from NFTs to even things like insurance or other use cases. What they're doing specifically with NFT appraisals, I think is going to be market changing. So the way that it works is like a hot or not for NFTs, right? Where you can kind of say, is one NFT more valuable than another NFT? And of course, appraising NFTs is going to be a really subjective 
conversation and price discovery is going to be really subjective. But I think over time, there are going to be relative um, sort of markers that allow people to appraise them better. So uh, this could be, for example, a number of different characteristics, things like who is issuing them, when they were created, who's owned them before. So for example, if a really legendary NFT collector has owned this NFT, perhaps the value of that is significantly more than you know another NFT. Um, the cultural relevance to it, of course, the scarcity of the particular NFT. So I think there's a confluence of different factors that kind of play a role. And what Upshot is doing is they're trying to take these different subjective factors and create a more quantitative way to say, you know, this is going to be a more valuable NFT than this, and then potentially get to some sort of score where we can actually get to a a place where there's better price discovery. So I think that's going to be really game changing for the entire market overall. And with Upshot, you can do this if there's 10 people on their platform kind of voting for different NFTs, or you can do it with, of course, thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands of folks. What really is interesting is that you really only need a few people to start sourcing that truth and start sourcing, you know, where the market thinks the value of a particular NFT is going to be. So they're building their sort of first product around this NFT appraisals. And I think there's going to be a lot of use cases for just better understanding market value and how this is going to evolve over time that we really need standards to be sort of built for. What's the underlining mechanism that makes this work? It's really the upshot protocol that allows this to be successful. And the upshot protocol is built around this idea of peer prediction. You know, they kind of call it this question and answer protocol. Really what they're doing is they're combining um, basically agents that are working within this decentralized network to stake capital. So to put forward capital in order to answer questions. So the incentives work in a way where you are put, you know, staking your own capital, you're incentivized to answer as correctly as you possibly can, and then effectively yield a crowdsourced true answer based on the collective group and the answers that have been kind of put forward. So it's kind of a way to incentivize folks to tell the truth and there's this assumption or rather it's not even really an assumption. It's really a truth that comes through where they only need a couple of people to kind of participate and you can start getting to that true answer, regardless of the question that's being posed. Is that clear? That's really interesting. So the sample size, I guess, is is what you're referring to doesn't need to be that big because usually it's until you have a large enough database, can you find something that's statistically true But in this case, like, what's the size of the crowd, you know, that Upshot needs to put together a market? Yeah, that's that's the sort of crazy part here is you don't need a significantly large group. This this protocol works great with two or three people answering these questions. And, you know, it also works great with thousands of people answering these questions. I think what they're um, employing specifically, the, the mechanism is called determinant based mutual information mechanism. Um, I'm not even going to going to pretend that I can kind of go into the the double click of that, but it's effectively a way where truth telling is the dominant strategy that the protocol is employing. They incentivize all the users to tell the truth, and it it allows basically um, any number of users to kind of come any any anything greater than three agents effectively two or three agents can create this score of truth effectively for, for answering questions. 
I'll find a link to that and I'll put it in the show notes for our audience uh, who wants to dig deeper into that. But that's super fascinating. So we talked a bit about the NFT tech stack. We explored a few platforms. I would love to pivot a little bit and talk about the heart of NFTs, which I think revolves around the ownership economy. And underlying all of the building in this new ownership economy, I think are paradigm shifts in internet culture. So I'll start off with a broader question here. What does the financialization of internet culture look like? Yeah, that's the million dollar question and something that I'm super excited about. So I guess I'll, I'll touch upon two or three trends that I think have really defined where we are in the internet today. So the first is this idea of the creator economy that has really become popularized in the last year as a term, but really has been happening for the past, you know, five, 10 years where creators are um, effectively becoming their own businesses where they are productizing their brand. Um, they're able to leverage their brand and audience to launch new products, services, um, and it's really a full-time job. So personally, you know, I've been following influencers on Instagram or YouTube for years now, and it sort of didn't dawn on me until recently how difficult it is to monetize those audiences today where the platforms are really capturing most of the value. And the way that they're, they've been capturing the value to date is really through this advertising model, but creators are putting 50, 60, 70 hours a week and only the most followed and most sort of successful creators are really generating an income that they can live off of. Otherwise, it really just becomes kind of a side hustle. So I think it wasn't until recently that this became a reality where you can start monetizing smaller groups, um, niche communities where everyone's really engaged and really is a true fan and wants to participate in your success and be part of this group. Um, I, I think that really just started recently with the advent of platforms like Substack or Patreon even, which allows you to support any individual creator. So to me, that's like the first piece is just this idea that you can create successful living online and that monetization needs to sort of be expanded beyond where it is today. And then the second piece, which I love is this financialization of culture. Um, and, you know, I think there's been conversations about how over time we've effectively turned every thing that you could invest in, um, we've made it investable. So we've effectively kind of made it mainstream. So one example that I think is really interesting over time is how angel investing has become really commonplace, at least within Silicon Valley. And I think even beyond that now, people are starting to be able to angel invest and, and have it kind of be this like side hobby. Then you kind of go into culture and different cultural artifacts. So there's platforms like Otis that allow you to purchase a fraction of, a, of an art piece, or there's other marketplaces that allow you to purchase sneakers. There's other marketplaces that allow you to buy really vintage cars. Honestly, anything that has cultural relevance and value is now able to be purchased via an online platform. And so we're starting to see this emergence of basically being able to purchase, invest in anything that has cultural value and different types of asset classes than, than our typical investor selections. And now what we're starting to see is, well, what about investing in the internet and investing in people who are building really interesting communities online and you know being able to participate in the 
economics of what it means to have, you know, one of the most successful newsletters online or one of the most successful YouTube channels or class or whatever it may be. And so I think that is going to be this next evolution where monetization really becomes the um, way to bring in engaged users. Users become investors. When they're investors, they're advocates for those creators. And it creates this like healthier, stickier network effect and hopefully allows both sides to economically benefit in the process. Yeah, I love what you just said. And I want to bring in a concept that you cited in one of your blog posts, which is the concept of a shelling point, right? Which basically refers to the notion of cooperating without communicating. And Naval Ravikant uh, says that you can use social norms to converge on a shelling point, and you can really apply this to any industry. But when it comes to online communities, which you just talked about, in Web 2.0, a lot of people tend to gather on Facebook or Twitter. But with NFTs, you write that it's unlikely the these platforms are going to be the shelling points. Rather, you say online communities and fan bases around NFTs will be the primary gathering points, right? That's a super fascinating take. Could you say more about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the shelling point concept is something that keeps coming up in my conversations. And Alex Danko in a post recently that he put out on his platform talks about NFTs being the shelling point. So he's kind of talking about NFTs themselves being the shelling point. I think what I've been observing is you know, a lot of the conversations around NFTs are not taking place on traditional platforms. Um, They're actually, you know, they're happening on Reddit or Discord or, um, you know, Twitter to a certain extent, or Telegram or Signal, you know, some of these different newer age um, platforms. And I think over time, what we're going to start to see is a whole crop of social platforms or social um, community based you know, ways to engage that are specifically tailored around this NFT experience. And I think we're just at the very, very beginning of that. So for example, Showtime just launched yesterday, they're kind of creating the social experience around owning and creating NFTs and being able to like them and share them with your friends. Um, I think we're going to see a whole slew of different social experiences built around NFTs. And as they become more popularized, as folks really lean into these communities, I think those new places to talk about them, to engage with them is going to be, those are going to be the shelling points of the online, our our online worlds. And it's going to move away from these mass, massive platforms where I I don't know about you, but on Instagram, it's really hard to have a conversation. You know, I'm just an everyday user and I'm just drowned out by ads and there's just too much. So I just think that that those are not going to be the primary beneficiaries moving forward. Yeah. Recently on the Good Time Show, the host invited Metacoven for a clubhouse talk. And for those who don't know, Metacoven is a pseudonym, I believe. And he is an OG NFT collector who won the auction for Beeple's $69 million artwork. Um, and one of the other guests on the show who was brought on, his name's Dylan Field. He's a CEO of Figma Design. And he commented that NFTs are forcing us to rethink our relationship, right, with art. And he says that perhaps one way to look at it is that the new art is the community itself and, you know, not necessarily the asset, right? The the musical piece or the artwork that's being produced. And similar to how you keep finding yourself uh, talking about the concept of a shelling point, 
I also similarly just keep seeing different iterations of this comment pop up all over the place on Twitter now, which is, you know, community being rebranded as where the value capture is. Absolutely. For those of you who may not have heard Dylan's comments, I I highly recommend going in and listening to that. I think he crystallized really, really well what is at the crux of all of this, which is community and the idea that it only takes a handful of people to feel super passionate about a particular piece of work, whether that's art or music or a blog. But that in itself is the beauty of what's what we're doing with NFTs and being able to own that um, that piece of work and use it as a community or bond over it as a community and talk about it and share experiences. I think that's really what we're going to start to see. Um, and I think the word community is, uh, you know, of course, I think to a certain extent overused these days, um, but it really is the the best word, I think, to describe what we're seeing, which is all these different communities taking off and people just getting so excited about what they're what they're building. So something else that you've written quite extensively about is the fact that NFTs are becoming the so-called it category for how creators and brands will evolve. In what ways do you think NFTs act as a distribution channel for these creators and bring about a new economic model, you know, past the sort of monetization that you talked about? Are there other ways that creators um, can benefit from the economic structure of NFTs? Yeah. So there's this famous phrase, you know, the medium is the message. And I think NFTs are a really strong way to distribute your work as a creator. And it has a couple of different benefits that I think are are unique. So the first is just thinking through fans and communities being a flywheel. And what I mean by that is if your fans are financially tied to your work and to your success, then they're going to become advocates for your work. And this kind of allows a network effect of a community base to, in my view, become stronger where, you know, you're using this NFT to distribute your, your work and the value of your work across your fans. But structurally, what that allows you to do is create this really highly engaged user base where I'm not sort of passively liking what you do, but I actually am cut in on the ground floor. And that's going to allow this flywheel to continue where I'm incentivized to bring new users into this network or I'm incentivized to participate on a higher level and engage with you and potentially, I don't mean to, I guess, monetize the user, but effectively the the total value per user is, I would expect to be substantially higher than me liking on Instagram. So I would say that's the first piece that I think is going to be really beneficial to creators from an economic perspective where you can have 100 fans and have that be a really, really successful business model for you to do the work that you love. I think the second is the incentive mechanisms that you can employ with NFTs. So a couple of examples here, NFTs can be used to retroactively distribute rewards to your community. So for example, if there is a user base that's been really supporting you, you decide to use NFTs as a way to reward the people who have been supporting you from day one. That's kind of their badge of saying, hey, I was here early. I supported you from day one. You know, I've been watching your YouTube channel since there were like 100 views and um, that's going to keep them around, I think. And it's going to keep them, they're going to become your your super fans. 
Um, the second is, you know, using NFTs to pre-fund your projects before launching. So of course you can do this via like crowdsourcing today, but I think this is an interesting model because early buyers give, a, you know, get this um, value of being an investor in whatever you're creating early on. And I think that's going to create a much um, stickier model for pre-funding projects where you can say, hey, like, I love my fans. They've been asking me to create a line of merchandise. I would love for folks to kind of invest in this merchandise line. And, you know, as a way, we're going to pre-fund this via um, an NFT token sale where you get, you know, online merchandise and physical merchandise or whatever, whatever it may be. I think there's just some really interesting ways that you can kind of play around with that. And then the last piece that I'll just say is I think NFTs are going to be a way to incentivize access to incentivize attention um, and user behavior. So just being able to use them to distribute your work, people who buy the NFT are are potentially going to be given access to your, your work in a different way, or, you know, they're effectively saying that we want to choose your work and give you our attention because we're putting our, our money down. Those are just some of the ideas that I have kind of floating around in my head, but I think that as a distribution channel, there's just so much that can be done with NFTs. Yeah, and that word super fan, I think, is going to come up more and more over time as the industry evolves. Uh, but I wanted to get your quick take on the super follow function that it seems Twitter is going to roll out very soon. Do you have any thoughts on that feature? Yeah, that's a, um, I think the super follow is, is really interesting. I guess here, here's one thing that I, I'm kind of stuck on. Anything that you've been getting for free that people put a price tag on moving forward, I think is a a more difficult way of conceptualizing the value. Of course, we get tons and tons of value from Twitter. I've learned so much from the people that I follow. Um, And, you know, I think I would love to support some of the folks who are are tweeting on, on Twitter. But that being said, I think adding the monetization you know, 10 years after the fact is really going to be a difficult proposition for, for me personally. Whereas if you are saying from day one, I would love people to participate and pay for the content that they want. I think that's just kind of built in then and, and it's an expectation that users have. And it's a little easier to swallow just from just from like a um, psychology perspective. That's just that's my thinking right now. Um, but who knows? I guess we'll see when when this goes live. I think someone tweeted about this actually and said it feels like Twitter has been writing an email for about you know a decade and finally hit send with all of these new features around spaces in response to or some might say not in response to making it a very public thing now that clubhouse has come online and this whole super follow feature as other platforms around web3 start to figure out new monetization channels we're going to start to see them struggle a little bit as these other platforms find niche communities that really support the platform because they're just doing something that native Web2 platforms haven't thought of. As we wrap up here, Kinjal, I wanted to leave you with an open-ended question. What are some questions about NFTs that you're still exploring? Yeah, so there are so many. I'm just thinking about which which ones. Um, so I guess I think top of my mind are, are two things. So first is NFTs have been become a noun when reality is that they're more of a verb. <laughs> um, 
So when I say that they're a verb, I think, you know, NFTs kind of have a life and they are, in my opinion, work the best when they're paired with an experience. Um, And so I think some of the questions that I have are what are the creative ways that we're going to see experiences develop around NFTs? And how do we um, ensure that those experiences are able to capture what value is created by having an NFT. So when I say what value, it's, you know, it's thinking through a couple of different qualities. People are talking about NFTs being scarce or NFTs um, really having this idea of provenance where you can sort of see what, you know, where it came from and where everything began. And I think that those assurances around an NFT are not fully developed today. So I guess my question is, you know, how are we going to make that experience really great for for a user and also be able to provide those assurances from a more technical and legal perspective? So when I say legal, it's questions around the IP and who owns the IP or how digital rights is going to evolve. So digital rights management over time, what, what is that going to look like? Um, where are people going to keep their NFTs? How are these things going to be traded in in terms of markets down the line where you have one of one of ones? And so liquidity is obviously going to be extremely difficult. Um, does that mean that NFTs will become fractionalized in the future? Um, there's just, yeah, there's just so many questions that when you kind of dig into it, I think need to be kind of figured out over the next few years. And that I think will create a better, more, concrete experience so that skeptics who say, you know, NFTs can just be copied and pasted, that they don't really have any utility. Um, I think those are the questions that we really need to dig into and answer. Fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing all of your views with our audience. I know it will be invaluable as they uh, listen on through this NFT series. Kindle, it was a pleasure to have you on Crypto Unstacked and hope to have you on very soon, if not for NFTs, for something else. Thank you so much, Leslie. It was great to be here today. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.